Jesus stays in parable mode across the Jordan River in Perea, where he visits the villages and tells them about the kingdom. All kinds of people gather to listen to the rabbi. His own apostles and disciples, their families, Pharisees of every district, lawyers, and even the much despised tax collectors. It's here that Jesus goes on a riff about lost things. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Aiken. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will share some more Perean parables. Jesus is going to continue to draw the ire of the Pharisees for the crowds that he spends times with. They always see a reason to disbelieve he sent from a God of love rather than to believe. They're actually frustrated Jesus won't denounce the sinners around him. Does he even love God? Instead, he eats with them, a cultural symbol for covenant relationship. Today we're in Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is clearly interested in finding the lost ones. Whoever they are, whatever they've done, Every person is worth celebrating. Every person is valuable to him. There is joy in heaven, God's space over a sinner who repents. More than what? 99 righteous people who didn't need it? Now who is that? Let's try to get in their headspace. The Pharisees were very into measurable repentance and public works to prove faithful loyalty to God. This is how the Pharisees define righteousness. What could they possibly need to repent from when all their public acts were for God? But that was of no value to God. Public acts that are heartless, empty, and actually in the way of relationship with him. He had long mourned that religion had overcome the covenant relationship way back in the time of the prophets. Jesus is simply agreeing with Yahweh that true repentance, the messy kind from lost ones, is more to celebrate 
than those who rest in their own piety. He makes that interpretation clear in the next parable, starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In this parable, we have a picture of God, the loving Father, and at the same time, we're shown a picture of us, his children, who have rebelled and turned away, but then find forgiveness. And we also have those who have aligned themselves with God, but then are upset at the Father's acceptance and forgiveness of the rebel. Now, we all go through a period of rebellion. It's called living. We all sin. We all rebel against God. We try to make it on our own, each person to varying degrees. One person lives in rebellion until the age of seven and then is reborn as a new creation in Christ. Maybe their worst unholy rebellion is chalked up to eating someone else's cookie at school. Others, like the prodigal son, find themselves hitting a low spot such as eating with pigs. And in their humility, they find the need for a savior and return home to God. And God will not turn them away for the rebellion. 
Through Jesus, he opens his arms and runs to them and gathers them and brings them back into the family and celebrates their repentance. If we are in Christ, this is part of all of our stories. Now, after we come home, we still go out and make mistakes. That seven-year-old's only sin was not the cookie. He will continue to need repentance. But we run the risk of becoming older brothers instead of celebrating with the crowds of heaven. And older brothers aren't as gracious as their father. They have followed God's truth. They have stayed the course. They have sacrificed to stay clear of sin, at least on the outside. But there are no apparent celebrations for that, as there are for new believers or people who have finally come home again. Oftentimes, the older brother will look down on and not even accept the younger because of the sinful lives they have lived. This description of the older son may describe some of us, but it was aimed at the Pharisees listening. The son said, All these years I've worked hard for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. Do you see it? I have worked hard. I have worked. I have earned your love. The other son has earned nothing. How can you love him? How can you offer him a party? Sadly, we go from marrying the younger son, the rebel who needs to be rescued by the grace and love of the father, and we can grow into the older son who complains when this is offered freely to others. For some of us, the transition happens quickly. For others, the process has been slower while it's yet to occur in many, we can stop the cycle. God's love is not based on our works. It's not based on what we have done or who we are or how moral we are. It doesn't, that, that stuff doesn't change our position with God. Loving kindness is extended to everyone, no matter their history. And this model continues into our now saved lives, for lack of a better term. Morality and goodness do not win us big houses and fancy cars. The Pharisees are the older brother, the natural-born, law-following son, and the father pours grace upon the lawless tax collectors and sinners, even Gentiles, and this is repulsive to them. They are like the older brother They would rather bring disgrace to the father by refusing to join his party with his friends than take joy in the father's boundless love. But Jesus has another story. Luke 16, 1-9 He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty 
Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. It would be easy to stop here and go, what in the world? How are we supposed to interpret this? But Jesus isn't finished, and he makes his point clear. Verse 10, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The crowds might imagine a slave who had an ownership claim by two masters. Now that would be rare, but it could happen, such as siblings inheriting a slave. The slave is naturally going to prefer one master over the other, and the two masters will have different wills and desires, and the slave will have to choose. Loyalty to both will not be feasible. Our owners are unrighteous wealth and the unrighteous wealth machine and Yahweh. We can use money to be wise with money and make money work for us, but we can't serve money and still be faithful to God. There will be conflict because the world of money is unrighteous as part of the Babylon machine, making kings and conquering neighborhoods with silver and gold. Will we be faithful with unrighteous wealth if it's given to us? It follows that it will be associated with the amount of true riches we receive. Whatever that may be, in heaven or on earth, monetarily or otherwise. Looking at this parable, the manager of the rich man's home is much like the prodigal son in the way that he wastes his possessions. This man receives the news that he's going to be removed from his job. He'll be unemployed and homeless. This may be too familiar to us in these days. He needs financial security. But he's not skilled for the available jobs on the market, and he's too proud to ask for money on the streets. What he needs, then, are some financially well-off friends before he's terminated from employment. And so he goes to his clients of his boss, who owe great amounts of money, and he lowers their bills in an attempt to make friends. And his boss discovers that his pink-slipped employee is doing these things and actually deems it as shrewd. Shrewd here is the Greek word phronomos, which means intelligent or sensible. The rich man praises the unrighteous manager for his intelligence in making friends with money while he still has the means. Jesus encourages us to use economic wealth to gain influence in the world to use it all up, to use all your contacts as much as possible. 
I imagine this is an affirmation to believers teaming up with secular organizations to feed the hungry, to get clean water to people, to provide cancer research, to end homelessness in your county. We're to use money wisely and have it serve us rather than us serve it. All the money on this earth is God's. And we're the managers. If we do well with it here, we'll be given some of our own. Now, what is the reaction that day? How would some rich Pharisees take money advice from a poor man? Well, first of all, they're not super rich. The Pharisees aren't the elite. But they did have enough money to educate their children um, in a, in a non-homeschool way. They had enough money to give to the poor publicly to make themselves appear righteous, and they could do that comfortably. Luke 16, 14 to 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed them. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus, and he responds in full about the status of their hearts, the status of the good news, and the status of the law's role in the kingdom. But let's revisit verse 16 quickly. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, we have not seen this type of force. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can use tools, and my tools make it look like this was a very poor translation. It would be fair to translate it as everyone into it fights. I would assume the fight would be a metaphor to represent our zeal for following Jesus. So rather than forcing our way into God's gates, it's more that once we are in it, we fight zealously to be loyal. That's something to dwell on. But let's go back to the bigger picture. We have the Pharisees. They do love money. Jesus is touching a nerve. We also need some historical context here to understand why Jesus would use the law of adultery after talking about money. The Pharisees have been changing their view on divorce, and they were taking um, a more liberal view than we even have in America today. Rabbi Hillel had said that divorce should be granted for any reason a man wishes, for things as small as the wife burning dinner. And the leaders were then granting divorces to men who wanted to marry another woman, which is not a good reason. In fact, that was the sin Jesus was calling adultery. By the Pharisees condoning divorce for poor reasons, and then declaring that the divorced and the remarried men were not committing adultery, the Pharisees were seeking to justify themselves before God. But Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the law of God to change even on one mark. God's stand on what is adultery wasn't going to change. And this is often where we get confused 
and inevitably a free man takes upon himself the yoke of the old law. And yes, the perpetual covenants of the Torah are still God's law. The rainbow covenant, the Sabbath, the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread and booths and the feast of trumpets and the day of atonement and all of the commandments. God doesn't change. These laws have not been annulled by the covenant of grace. They have been amended so that we are free. We can't be condemned by this law because Jesus has fulfilled it on our behalf. And in our story, this is what he's accomplishing. If we were still under the law as it was, we would be condemned in our failure to follow. But through Christ, we may fail, and yet there is no condemnation. So should we sin against God more now that we are free? No. When we trust Jesus and we follow after him, we're going to be led into obedience. If we place ourselves under the law instead of under Jesus, we're going to focus on the thou shalt not and consequently fail more frequently. You could compare it to our eyes on the water instead of our eyes on Jesus and sinking. The Pharisees are breaking the law, and then they're justifying their decisions as not breaking the law. Our justification of law-breaking can never change God's truth or his laws. The truth of God always remains the same, no matter how we try to color them. Jesus wants his listeners to understand that riches are not always a sign of blessing. Riches are not the sign of the righteous. So even though he has said that if you are good with little, you may be given more, that doesn't mean that every rich man is righteous. And here we find what has been called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But that will have to wait for another day. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. The Pharisees were upset that Jesus wasn't condemning the sinners around him. And this was based on a terrible lie that we are needed by God to change others. That we somehow, some way, became immune to the need to repent ourselves. Repentance is constant. Renewing our minds to follow Jesus is constant. There is a real judge in Jesus who knows our minds and our hearts, and he alone makes those calls. And he alone is the healer and the changer. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will share a very unique parable.